0: Say it one more time. This is Acts chapter twenty three, verses twelve through thirty-five. This morning, as we look at this, we're gonna really be seeing this first fulfillment of God's promise to Paul. We're gonna start by looking at that in just a moment. But we're gonna see this deliverance from attemptive murder. The deliverance from attemptive murder in the life of Paul. Um, but kind of set the stage a little bit for um, anyone that has a a bad memory or anyone that has not been here. Paul had returned back to Jerusalem and went through the purification process so that he could be received by the Jews, essentially. And going through the purification process, he was on the seventh day. And in the seventh day, some Jews from um, Most likely the Ephesus area sees Paul and sees another gentleman uh, in the vicinity of the temple uh, that was from Ephesus. And assuming that Paul allowed him to go into the temple and uh, was proclaiming to the other Jews that Paul was the one that was saying that Jerusalem and the Jewish uh, background and the temple was unnecessary. And in doing this, they begin to uh, just yank Paul out of the the temple and in yanking him out, and they go into the the inner court, uh, the outer court, I mean. And then in the outer court, they begin to beat him and question him. This great crowd comes up uh, in the tribune, which was a Roman government uh, entity of sorts, uh, sees this crowd forming and in fear that there would be this rebellion or this uh, whatever you want to put there this uproar in the Jerusalem area that would cause issues for the providence, they step in and take control of the situation. And in doing so, they, it looks like they arrest Paul, but they're really bringing Paul into safety there. They place him between two guards, and in placing him between two guards, they take him to the barracks. Before he goes into the barracks, he asks if he could speak to the Jews. He does so, he speaks to the Jews, and then they are even more angry, and being even more angry after he speaks, another day goes, and the tribune then requests of the Jewish religious leaders to meet together and allow them as the Roman tribune and the Jewish leadership meet together with Paul so they can figure out who Paul is, is what we looked at last week. And in all of that, we see that Paul kind of leverages the circumstances to cause even more of uh, an uproar within the religious groups and separating the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the difference between the two is primarily the fact that the Pharisees believed in a resurrection, so therefore they believed in all of what we now have as the Old Testament, but the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection, and they only held to the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. Paul calls this his uproar. They place him back into jail or in the barracks. Realizing he is a Roman citizen, they're not arrested him at this point, but rather keeping him safe from the crowds. And then in verse 11, in the middle of the night, it says this. The following night, the Lord, when it says the Lord here, speaking of Jesus So in the following night, the Lord Jesus stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So in the middle of the night, after being beaten and now somewhat in this limbo stage of imprisonment and being released back in Jerusalem, Jesus is giving Paul this reassurance, this promise that nothing will happen to him here, but rather he has to go to Rome. And in the following chapters of Acts, as we finish our way in Acts over the next month and a half, You're going to see circumstance over circumstance after circumstance where God provides for Paul and fulfills this promise. And this morning is the first fulfillment of that promise. So starting in verse 13, I'm sorry, starting in verse 12, says when it was day the Jews made plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat or drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and went and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring them down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of this ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he was something to say to you. Verse 19, the tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink, till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent so the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Do not tell tell no one that you have afforded me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, I'm going to pause. That's who the one talking is. This whole, it says in the tribune this whole time, this is who's talking, Claudius Lysias. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor of Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. When I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge for which they have accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused of, about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against this man. I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by the night to Anthoprithus. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. And when they had come to Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor. and They presented Paul also before him. And on reading the letter, he asked what providence he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for providing us an example in the life of Paul of the response of the world to those who have trusted in your Son Jesus. God, we pray that though we may not find ourselves in exact moments like this, God that we would be uh, people of boldness, in comfort in the promises that you have provided for us. and God, I pray that we would focus our hearts and mind on the reason in which Paul was imprisoned was simply because of who your son is. And what he has done for us all. In your son's holy name. Amen. So I mentioned earlier, this is really the first promise, this first way we see the promise of Christ in chapter 23, verse 11, fulfilled in the life of Paul. And what I want us to see in all of this text this morning is that God used established relationships and structures to fulfill his promise of provision for Paul. Specifically that of his nephew and of the Roman government that was pre-established before this moment. That God used established relationships and structures to fulfill his promise of provision for Paul. And in that, what I want us to see in our own lives, after I let her leave, she's not very happy apparently that God often uses established relationships and structures in our own lives to accomplish His will in the life of our, ourselves, in the lives of His disciples. And so what we're going to see in this is we're going to break this up in two sections this morning, and we're going to really focus in 12 through 22 at the uh, God using an unlikely relative to expose the Jews' plot. And then we're going to look at 23 through 35, and we're going to see that God uses the Roman tribune to provide safety for Paul. Now, just a quick history lesson is Paul was a unique man in the sense that he was Jewish in background. So the law in which the Jews were trying to bestow upon him and accusing him of breaking and go in before the Sanhedrin and all of those things was customary for his people. The Roman government did not come in and do away with the Jewish way of life. They rather came in and oversaw it and only stepped in when necessary. This is why that when Jesus was crucified, it was justifiable in the life of the Roman government because it was the way in which the Jews operated. And so the Roman government stepped in and aided because Jesus was a Jew from Nazareth that was claiming to be God, though we know he was God. They killed him for being a one that would blaspheme. And he dies, and as we've already addressed this morning, placed in a tomb, rises again, conquering sin, death, in the grave. This is why Jesus died, and this is why the Roman government allowed it and even orchestrated it for the Jewish people. Then you go on in the book of Acts, and you see another death of a believer of Christ, and that is Stephen. Really at the hands of Paul before he came to know Jesus and the other Jews in the area. The reason why the Roman government didn't step in and stop this death is because they were operating in the midst of their own Jewish culture and government. But what's different about Paul is that Paul is not only a Jew, but he is a Roman citizen. And not only a Roman citizen, but a Roman citizen by birth. And once the tribune found this out about Paul, It went from imprisonment to provision. It went from taking him and arresting him for causing an uproar to taking him and providing safety for him. Why? Because they weren't attacking another Jew. They were attacking a Roman citizen and that was something they could not allow to happen in this situation. It had to go through the channels and structures of the Roman government. So what we see in this is that God is sovereignly providing for Paul in this moment. Why? As we saw in the promise in verse 11, that he would testify of Jesus in Rome, just like he did in Jerusalem. And at the end of the sermon, we're going to see what he testified. So as we get into that, that's just a quick history lesson so as to understand why all of this is important and why Paul is different than Jesus and why Paul was different than Stephen. It's because God was sovereignly working in his life so that Jesus would be proclaimed to the ends of the earth according to Romans 1.8. I mean Acts 1.8, sorry. So first and foremost, God uses an unlikely relative to expose the Jews' plot, So again, in verse 12, it says that when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves with an oath neither to eat nor drink that they may until they have killed Paul. There was more than 40 who made this conspiracy and they went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore along with the council give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly and we, as and we are ready to kill him before he comes near Now in this moment we don't see the the fact that the tribune would have been okay with this but as this boy kind of gives this news to the Roman government we actually see this, this practice here that they're actually going to fold into this And the Sanhedrin would allow this to happen. Most likely, though, it's not the Pharisees of the Sanhedrin, but rather it's just the Sadducees. Because the Pharisees have already agreed with Paul to some extent or another. So this group of 40 Jews are most likely a group of Jews that came from Ephesus, and they're desiring to kill Paul. And in secrecy, they come before the tribune, the, the, the structures thereof at least. It says, look, if you tell the, not the tribune, the, the, Sadduce, the Sanhedrin, they, they come before the Sanhedrin and say, look, if you tell the tribune that you want Paul again and you want to meet with him again so you can judge him more strictly and be more precise with what's going on here, then he, they will bring him. And as they bring him, what we're going to do is we're going to take our 40 people that we've agreed not to eat or drink anything. They're they're essentially making this agreement with one another that they're not going to do anything of providence until they kill Paul. And they're going before these people and says, look, we just need him out of the barracks and onto the ground. And if you get him onto the ground, we will kill him before he even makes his way to you. And they'll never think the wiser that you were involved in this plot. This is evil. In secrecy, these people of God are so determined to kill a man that they go before the tribune. And think about the boldness there to do something contrary to the word of God, to do it in secrecy. To go before the the Sanhedrin and going before the Sanhedrin, they're agreeing to this. This is just evil. It's pure evil. But the reality to this is this is no different than the life of Jesus. That when we look at the Holy Week and we look exactly how the death of Christ unfolded, it all happened at night. It happened from one place to another quickly. The evil plot against Paul really has nothing to do with Paul himself. Luke chapter 20, 19 through 24, says the scribes and the chief priests sought "...to lay hands on him." The him, him here is talking of Jesus. "...lay hands on him at the very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be insincere, that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him to the authority and the jurisdictions of the governor." So the same group of people, not too many years before, is trying to catch Jesus in a trap to give him to the governor. So in verse 21 of this text, he gets into this uh, question. He says, so they ask him, teacher, we know that you are to speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said Caesar's. I'm going to pause there because the whole point of the story is very simply that I want to highlight this morning. as these same people are doing things in secrets and in spies out to catch Jesus is doing it to Paul. Which reminded me of John fifteen eighteen through 24. This is if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I have said to you, a servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all of these things they will they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for the sin. Whoever hates me hates my father. Also, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But they have seen and hated both me and my father. But look at verse 20 one more time. Remember the word that I have said to you, a servant is no greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my word, they will keep yours. Jesus is telling his disciples here, which then goes to Paul and even to us today, is that the reality of the situation here is that Paul is not being persecuted and plotted against because of who Paul is, but rather the one whom he represents. But Jesus also told his disciples in Matthew ten nineteen, and we see this kind of enfolded in all of Paul's situation here, is that when they deliver you over, do not be anxious on how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. We don't see Paul say a word in all of this other to then to the young man in the satyrian that says take him to the tribune he says nothing else he does not try to justify himself he does not speak against the jews he says nothing here because paul isn't to say anything because god is working through the ordinary and missed means of the day that he's using an unlikely relative here and he's going to use the Roman tribune to provide safety for him in this. Why is he so confident of that? It's because Jesus stood before him and says, just as you have been my witness here in Jerusalem, you will be in Rome. But we see this evil plot of the Jews here unfolding. But then we see an unlikely relative. What's so interesting about the life of Paul is this is the only moment. Except for one other moment, I believe it's in Philippians, where at the end of it, he says, and my kinsmen. And kinsmen could mean relatives, or it could just mean other Jews. Most likely in that text, is other Jews. So this most likely is the only moment in the entire New Testament we see anything about Paul's family. The reason why that is the case I think is found in Philippians 3, 8. Paul is writing to the church of Philippi. He says, indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus, my Lord. I'm going to pause there. He says, look, everything I've been through is worth it because Jesus is my Lord and Jesus is worth it. But he goes on, he says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, And count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. We can take that very plain and simple, and it means that. Is that Paul as a Jewish Roman citizen that grew up in Tarsus, that most likely his family re- relocated to Jerusalem so that he could train under Galilee. They surrendered all so that this guy, this Paul, this Saul, could surrender his life to following the Lord in the way in which the Lord would have him. And then he rose quickly in the ranks of Judaism Until that moment he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus and it changed everything. And in changing everything, he gave up everything that he had. Even today, in in a lot of modern Judaism or even Muslim faith, we see that when one comes to know Jesus, they surrender everything they have. They lose family. They lose friends. They lose homes. They lose occupations. They lose everything. Paul, when he came to know Jesus... He didn't only give up a career path. He gave up everything that he had. And most likely, we can't say it completely, but most likely his entire family abandoned him because they saw him as apostate. Uh, what's the word? Apostate. apostate. Thank you. Thank you. An apostate, meaning one that had abandoned the faith and purely Think about it as a familiar perspective here. This was no easy task for Paul. His family would give up everything for him to go to Jerusalem. And then he would then surrender everything they gave so that he could do this one new thing. But as we see in Philippians, none of that mattered. It was rubbish to him. Why? Because Jesus was worth it. It doesn't matter what we give up in this life. It doesn't matter the, the things that we think we need or want in this life. Jesus is worth it. So why is that important here? Is because what's so interesting about this is we see nothing about anyone in Jesus in Paul's family until this moment, where it says in verse sixteen and seventeen, now the son of Paul's sister. There's somewhat of a relationship here because Paul's sister would have known that this, Paul's sister's son would have known this was Paul in some way or another. We don't even know anything about him. We don't know how he knows of this plot. We don't know anything. We don't even know his age. And that's debated. I'm going to argue in just a moment though, he wasn't, a lot of people think he's in later teens to mid twenties. I don't think he was that old. I think he was younger and we'll get to that in just a second. We don't know anything about him. We don't know why he knows of the plot. We don't know how he knows Paul. But we see this is a very unlikely means in which God was providing for Paul because his family would have abandoned him. But they would have saw it as, his, as if he abandoned them. So this is unlikely, not only because it's a family member, but I would argue it's unlikely because most likely this is a young boy. I don't know how old. And I can't argue it in Greek. I can't argue it in any of those things. But I will say very quickly, this is why I believe it's a young boy and not a late teens and early 20-year-old. Look at the way the tribune responds to him. Verse 17. No, I'm sorry. Verse 19. The tribune took him by the hand and was going aside and asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? I want you to think of Noah for a moment. I'm, I'm, if I walked to Noah and I grabbed him by the hand and pulled him gently to the side and just talked to him plainly, what, what, what is it that you want me to tell you? It's weird, right? And not only would it be weird in this context, it would be weird, even more weird in this context where these Roman leaderships would not respond that way. But if I did that to Melody, which I'm going to point out Melody because the rest of the kids are mine. If I did that to Melody, would it be weird that I grabbed her by the hand and I said, what is it that you wanted to tell me? And I said it calmly and peacefully. That wouldn't be weird. The reason why this is so unique is not only is it Paul's relative, but most likely a young boy that somehow hears of this plot. Maybe hears of the plot because he's just running around the streets and he gets a word of it. Who knows? Who knows? We don't need to know. What we need to know is that God was using this young boy to provide knowledge of this plot against Paul, to the Paul himself, and then to the tribune, which would then result in his deliverance from their the attempted murder. murder. So we then see the plot exposed, which is the first moment we see an important phrase in the ministry of Paul. Verse 18, So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, This is the centurion talking. Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. What makes this even more crazy it's the fact that centurion, this guard, listens to a prisoner of sorts about what a young boy has to say. And then the tribune would be willing to listen to what a young boy has to say. This was unique all the way around. And why? Because Paul was a Roman citizen It has nothing to do with anything greater or lesser than that, is that Paul was a Roman citizen. So therefore, he was actually probably higher ranked than this centurion was. And he did not purchase his Roman citizenship like this uh, Claudius Lysia did. He was won by birth. So they show him utmost respect here and they listen to a young boy's response. And what we see in that is that it's exposed to him. We see the plead to not do this. Do not be persuaded. But listen to the words of the tribune. It says he dismissed the young man charging him. Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. This was a warning to him, not for his safety from the tribune, For from his safety from the Jews. Says look. Don't tell anybody you've been here. It's not safe for you to let them know. That you came and you told me this. So the plot is exposed. But why is that word phrase there so important? It's because in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 1. He says for this reason I Paul a prisoner of Christ. Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul is no longer the Paul, the missionary or the church planner or the pastor or the evangelist. But Paul is now certainly fulfilling all of those things. Paul is now the prisoner in which God would use sovereignly to allow him to present the gospel to every leading official in the Roman government, to Caesar himself. So from there we move and we see God uses the Roman tribune to provide safety. So first and foremost, just to recap it again, God used an unlikely relative to expose the Jews' plot. And I want us just to pause very quickly and just think through the means in which God uses in our own lives. The people he placed in our life So that we could understand the gospel greater or grow in our knowledge of him more. That God often uses the ordinary and small and significant things of life to point us to him greater. And I would argue there also is that there's no accident in which the families or the friendships that we build in life. But they're built and designed for us to use them for his glory and for our good. The second thing, though, is that God uses the Roman tribune to provide safety for Paul. I reference these first few verses, 23 through 30, as the Roman carriage ride. The Roman carriage ride here we see, starting verse 23, says, then they called the two centurions and said, get ready, 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, to go as far as Caesarea, at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter in this effect. We're going to pause before we get to the letter. We see that the response of this plot is to get the people ready to take Paul to safety. And it looks like overkill, but it's just to provide security for a Roman citizen. It was the utmost importance for this guy to do this, for Claudius to do this, to make sure Paul made it to Felix safely. So he takes 200 Satyrians, he says, he says to the two satirians, get ready, 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. He says, get the crew together. We're taking him. He's going to be provided safely to Felix. But look at the respect here in verse 24. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring safely to Felix. Paul's not walking. He's been beaten. Paul's not just riding a horseback. Man, they're getting everything ready for him. They're getting the mounts ready for him. And a Roman citizen would have had more than one mount. It was very elaborate and significant. Why? Because they were significant people to the Roman government. So this respect is shown to him. He gets this Roman carriage ride. He is taken safely and quickly. It said at the ninth hour, at the third hour, which would be nine o'clock. So he doesn't hesitate. This knowledge comes to him. And then as soon as he gets the knowledge of this, he gets Paul ready. And then they leave. But what does his letter say? I'll pause and say this about the letter before we read it. His letter is self-fulfilling. His letter is boasting upon his response in the situation. Uh, but in all reality, it didn't actually play out completely like this, if you remember the history here. Claudius Lysias jumps in, has no idea he's a Roman citizen, though he's going to claim he'd come to his savior, saving because he was a Roman citizen. He's trying to make himself sort of look good here, but he's also just showing the intent here was to provide safety for a Roman citizen. says... Claudius Lysias, to the Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon him with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And deserving to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to your council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but not charged with anything deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that that there would be a plot against this man, I sent him at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. He says, look, I'm sending him to you for safety and for you to handle this matter. Why would he go here instead of Jerusalem? Why wouldn't they just keep it in house in Jerusalem? It's because as long as Paul stayed in Jerusalem, there was going to be a risk at his life. But these 40 Jews would never in their right mind, try to kill Paul at this location. So he gets there safely in verse 31. And Felix asked Paul, where are you from? He says, from Cilicia. And he says, I will hear your case when your other, the others will arrive. So the practice there, just like any other common sense Uh, courtroom situation of this day is there's the accuser and there's the defendant. So he says, as soon as your accuser gets here, I will hear of your case. And next week, we're going to pick up and we're going to see exactly what that was. But this morning, I just want to highlight before we transition to communion, is that God was sovereignly using two very overlooked things of this world to provide his promise to Paul. The children of a a child of a relative that would have probably at some point in life dismissed Paul altogether. And then the Roman government that was established already God using both of these things to accomplish his will in the life of Paul here, but not only in the life of Paul. God was using Paul as a messenger of the gospel to the ends of the world, to the Roman government. So God was using Paul, yes, but using these two means to make sure and to ensure that his good news of Christ's death, burial and resurrection was made known to that of everyone in the Roman government of sorts. I want to remind us very quickly of why Paul was arrested is what his claim is, at least. 23, verse 6. It says, Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the others were Pharisees, he cried out to the council of the Pharisees, uh, cried out, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. We're going to pause there. That part, none of that's important right now. What's important is this next phrase. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. So in this moment, he's claiming the same thing he will claim every place he makes it in this presentation of why he was arrested. And it all climaxes in Acts 26, 23, when he says this, that the Christ must suffer And that being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. That Paul is claiming that he is arrested not because of what Paul has done, but because of who Christ was. The hope of the resurrection that we have in Christ. That Christ was to suffer and that being the first one to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. Paul's claim is plain. is The reason in which he was imprisoned was because of the hope of the resurrection of Christ Jesus. This morning, I read a scripture about the hope of the resurrection in Christ Jesus. As we make our way to take communion together, I want to read that. Matthew 28, 1-2. It says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the others... Mary went to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes like white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. This morning, as we reflect on the reason in which Paul was imprisoned, is the hope of the resurrection, which we celebrate on days like this, and as I said earlier, every Sunday. The reason in which Christ had to be resurrected is because He broke His body and He pulled out His blood for all that would believe and trust in Him. The God, before the foundation of the world, Planned for Christ to be this substitutionary atonement for us. And he planned for this to be the sacrifice for those who would believe in Him. And that even when Adam and Eve sinned, there's this small moment of hope that there was a descendant that was to come and as he comes, he will defeat sin. And as you and I have sinned and Christ was certainly the hope for those who have trusted in Him. Why? Because He was perfect without sin. And He did not stay in the grave because the grave was not made for Him. The grave is a result of sin. Jesus knew no sin, so He rose again, conquering it all. So that we could place our hope and trust in Him. And so that we can proclaim it to those around us, even when we're beaten and arrested, or even when it's just not popular and this morning. So we draw near to the table. I just want to pray for us, and then I'll walk through this together. Father, we thank you for...